Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Let's again go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a, what a sobering reminder. You are a serious God. And it is exactly true that there is no greater proof, no greater testimony of your seriousness than the coming of the Messiah. You weren't content to look the other way at a creation that had gone astray, a creation that had brought itself under the sentence of self-destruction, of dissolution, of disintegration. You weren't content to wag your finger at that creation and say, I told you so. Nor were you content to stand at a distance in righteous indignation and and destroy all things in their willful rebellion, in their willful corruption. But you express the greatest seriousness of love and intent and design by taking upon yourself in the person of the incarnate Son the corruption, the brokenness, the dissolution and disintegration of your creation. You bore that and condemned it in yourself. And when we think of Jesus the Messiah, when we think of him as our Lord and Savior, we think of a God who saves in that sort of a way. A God who saves by becoming that which needed to be saved. We can never say our God doesn't know, our God doesn't understand, our God doesn't feel our infirmities, our God doesn't know our suffering, our fears, our doubts, our struggles. For you know all too well. You know better than we know. You have taken to yourself our humanness in all of its weakness and frailty, brokenness, subjection to the curse. In order to sustain your own wrath against yourself in the sun, in order to heal and to renew And when we think of Christ, our great high priest, we think of that triumph. We think of that glory. 
And I pray, Father, that like Paul, our hearts would rise and say, if God is for us, who can be against us? When we understand what it means that you are for us, how can we fear? How can we doubt? How can we look anxiously about ourselves? Christ Jesus, who died, much more who is raised, seated at your right hand, is the one who continually intercedes for us. What can separate us from the love of our God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? The one who doesn't merely represent us, but the one who has taken us upon himself, the one who has become man for our sake, man that we would become truly human in him. Father, these are troubling times. These are difficult times. These are challenging times in so many ways. We see sickness. We see suffering. We see death. But we know also that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah, and he reigns forever. And I pray that you would give us strong encouragement, all hope, all confidence, and a countenance that reflects your glory that is in the face of Christ our Lord, the glory that we are being conformed to by the grace and the power of your Spirit. So I pray that you would lift up our hearts, that you would capture our imaginations, that you would give us a new and a fresh, a glorious vision of Christ our Lord. Even as the writer of Hebrews labored so sincerely and and so lovingly and fervently to cause these brethren that he loved and that he was so deeply concerned about, that they would be lifted beyond their suffering beyond their doubt, beyond their insecurity, beyond their compromise, to once again be caught up in your glory, to understand what had come in the Messiah and who they were in him. May it be so for us. Cause us to profit as the writer intended them to profit. And we will praise you and thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. As we continue on with Hebrews, we begin into uh, chapter 8, which is actually a a transitional context, uh, transitional in the sense that the writer is kind of gathering up and bringing a sort of summary to what he's been instructing his readers uh, in to this point, specifically Uh, Jesus' own priesthood, this Melchizedekian priesthood, and how uh, that compares with and surpasses the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood that preceded it. So he gathers up all of this instruction uh, and, and summarizes it, but in order to press forward to, again, project his his focus onto ultimately this issue of the covenant associated with the priesthood. Remember, he said that it was on the law, it was on the Israelite covenant uh, that uh, the pre, or the, rather the law was founded upon the priesthood. The covenant was grounded and based in the priesthood. And his thesis is that where there is a change of priesthood, there is necessarily a change of covenant as well. The two are inseparable. 
So his, his consideration of, of Jesus' high priesthood is ultimately uh, unto the end of a wider scope, a broader significance, a whole new covenantal reality uh, that constitutes the fulfillment of God's promise to return, to renew the covenant relationship with his people through forgiveness, through purging, through the renewal of all things. And as I say so often, I'm going to say it again, uh, this author is obviously writing from a Jewish perspective uh, to Jewish believers. And so he treats these topics uh, from a Jewish perspective. And to the extent that we can, in a sense, immerse ourselves in that perspective, to that extent, we'll, we'll better profit from what it is that he has to say. But just recall again that, that what he is doing here is speaking about how God has proven faithful to what he promised, all of that faithfulness bound up in the person and the work of Jesus the Messiah. And therefore, whatever their fears, whatever their doubts, there is really nothing to return to. They can't retreat to the refuge of Judaism. And we might not be inclined to want to retreat to the refuge of Judaism, but we too are inclined to retreat to places of refuge that we construct in our own minds, or uh, it could even be our sense of religion or, or whatever it happens to be. But the answer to the things that challenge us, the answers to the insecurities, the struggles that we have, is a greater, more profound, more compelling knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, this transitional section begins chapter 8, the first five verses I want to consider today. And then beginning with uh, verse 6, he begins to shift towards this thing of the covenant associated with this priesthood. And that really is the centerpiece. It's not the only thing, but it's kind of the the center uh, of the argument from that point forward uh, into actually chapter 10. And the writer will follow this same pattern of providing a, a kind of multifaceted uh, 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 instruction, bringing instruction to bear from many angles, many, uh, many dimensions, weaving a three-dimensional fabric, if you will, and then at the end, summing that up with an exhortation grounded in that instruction. And that's what concludes chapter 10, then, uh, verses 19 and following. That gives us a sense of where we're going. But from the rest of chapter 8 through chapter 9 into chapter 10, the writer will be dealing with this topic of the covenant and all of the threads and implications associated with that. So read with me then chapter 8, verse 1. We'll read through the fifth verse. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. What sort of high priest? The high priest he's been discussing for quite some time. One who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavenly places, a minister in the sanctuary, that is the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, hence it is necessary that this priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. He's already discussed this issue of the Levitical priesthood and the Messiah as being of the wrong tribe. 
But these priests who serve and offer gifts according to the, the Mosaic covenant, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, the Lord says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So I've titled this transition, Superior Priest, Superior Ministration. And that's how I want to, to deal with it this morning. The first couple of verses, he shows us in, in a very, again, concentrated summary way, the way in which Jesus is this superior priest. And recall again that the focal point of that superiority is that he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And I hope that we recall who Melchizedek was, king of Salem, priest of God Most High. Melchizedek uh, represents this epitomizing royal priest or king priest. And so the writer, he doesn't mention Melchizedek here, but that's clearly in his mind as he discusses or summarizes who this priest is in his superiority. And so he deals with both the regal and the priestly side of it. He says that he is seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavenlies. Kind of an Israelite uh, um, um, illuminating way of explaining his place at the right hand of God. The majesty, the highness in the heavenlies. So he highlights first this regal aspect of the Melchizedekian priesthood administration. This is the focal point of Psalm 110, which he's cited repeatedly. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. A priest king. And as the enthroned king priest, Jesus, he says, has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty in the heavenlies. This heavenlies idea, it's a plural idea. It's not so much talking about the place that we would put the label of heaven on. Jesus is up in a place called heaven sitting on a throne. The imagery, in a sense, expresses that, but really that's not the point. It's not that Jesus is sitting up in a place called heaven on a throne. But the heavenlies represents the realm that God inhabits, God's space, if you will, the realm that God inhabits and that he rules from. And specifically, as the heavenlies have become this uh, realm of eschatological fulfillment, the reign of God has now come in the Messiah in a way that wasn't true. Often you hear Christians say, well, God's always been king. God's always been king over the universe. And in a sense, that's true. God has always been sovereign. But the scriptures deal with the reign of God as really being initiated in terms of the, the ultimacy of it, what God intended it to be in connection with the coming of the Messiah. In the Messiah, God has taken his throne and begun to reign over the world in the image son, in the Messiah, in the way that he always intended. So this idea, again, as, as we've seen it through the book of Hebrews, this, this enthroned king seated, seated at the, the right hand of the majesty on high 
It expresses and emphasizes the glory of the Messiah as God's image son. I've said it repeatedly, and I'm kind of reminding us of the things, because again, what the writer's doing is bringing a summation to what he said. And when he talks about this enthronement, a high priest who's enthroned, it emphasizes the fact that Jesus has been ascended and enthroned as the image son, as the true man. The, the emphasis in his enthronement is not his deity, but his humanity. He has become truly, fully, exaltedly man. Exercising as image son, God's rule over the works of his hands. This was God's design of kingship from the very beginning. You see that in the creation account. That God would carry out his rule over the works of his hands through the creature, man, who bears his image and likeness. That's the sense in which God has begun to reign now in the ultimate eschatological sense. It also, in in the sense of taking his seat, it expresses that there is a successfulness or a transcendence, but a successful transcendence in this mediation between God and his works. And again, to an Israelite audience, they would not have missed this. The priest never sat down. There was no place to sit, either in the holy place or the holy of holies. And the emphasis here is more on the imagery of the holy of holies, because he's focusing on the high priestly ministry. And the holy of holies was the place specifically where God was enthroned. If he was enthroned in Israel, he was more narrowly enthroned on Mount Zion. He was more narrowly enthroned in the tabernacle. He was most specifically enthroned in the Holy of Holies above the wings of the cherubim. You see this in the Psalms. You see this throughout the Old Testament. The image is that the Ark of the Covenant was the footstool of God's feet. It was the place where heaven and earth came together. And so the God who's enthroned in the heavens actually sits, that his feet touch the earth between the wings of the cherubim. And that's why they spoke of him being enthroned in that place. So that kind of imagery is very much important to this. But again, at this point, he says, this priest has sat down. Even though he's going to be talking about the constant work of this priest, he's doing it from a posture of sitting down. There's a completion. So the transcendence here is that Israel's priests never sat. Their work was never completed. This will become more obvious as we move on. Day after day, year after year after year, they continued to do their priestly work. And not only did the high priest or any priest never sit down in the tabernacle and later in the temple, in terms of this entrance into God's throne room, this entrance into the place where God is enthroned, the high priest would only enter once a year, and he entered very quickly and very fearfully. Not only did he not sit down in that place, but he entered very quickly and did his business and and left. There was still the sense of distance between God and man. And the priestly mediation reflected that. 
they passed into God's throne room in a very fearful way. So he is a superior priest first because, again, he is the enthroned king. But as we saw both in Zechariah, and you see it also certainly expressed in other places, he is a priest upon his throne. And so he says, the main point is that this one has taken his seat. This priest has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. But he is also a liturgos, one who offers the liturgy, a, a minister is the idea. The priestly ministration is the idea. He does his priestly work in the sanctuary that is the true temple. Now, the NES says in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, but I think that and should be translated as even. It's an ascensive idea. He ministers in the sanctuary, which is to say the true tabernacle. What makes it true? It's erected by God and not by men. And even this uh, pitched idea is is a good verb because it's the idea of raising a tent. And that's a very Israelite idea. The tabernacle was a tent. It was erected. It was erected by men. This is a sanctuary that is erected by God, not by men. A place of God's dwelling, a place of ministration, a place of divine human encounter that God has erected. And again, I'm sure in the author's mind, he's got the Messiah in the center of his mind because the Messiah is ultimately that sanctuary, right? The one that God himself has erected. So the implication here, just as this king, this kingship has a unique quality to it, so also this priestly work involves a unique sanctuary, a transcendent sanctuary. It transcends its earthly counterpart. And the very nature of Jesus' priesthood demands this. Why? Again, he is the Melchizedekian high priest. He is a king priest. He carries out his priesthood as an enthroned king. That alone says that we're, we're operating now. And remember, an Israelite audience, whatever they thought about the, the preparatory and, and prophetic place of the sanctuary and the priestly ministration as it looked to what God would fulfill in connection with the coming Messiah, that whole system never allowed the idea for a king priest. There would never be a priest ministering in association with that sanctuary. This one carries out his priestly ministration as the enthroned king. So verses 1 and 2 go together. They're mutually implying. They're mutually dependent and interpretive. This one who has taken his seat at the right hand of power is the Leiturgos in the sanctuary, in the true temple. And remember again the vision in Zechariah 6, the crowning of the high priest. Behold branch. That's a Davidic term, the branch of David. Behold the branch. He will branch out from where he is. He will build God's sanctuary. And he will rule as a priest on his throne. The priesthood and the kingship are merged in the Messiah and they operate simultaneously and continuously in him.
So that's a quick look at this idea of him being the superior priest. But obviously, the ways in which he's a superior priest also point to the ways in which he has a superior ministration. And just like all preparatory or prophetic things, there are dimensions of continuity or continuousness and discontinuity or difference. It's the way in which the whole notion, if you say it, uh, that this preparatory priesthood and sanctuary, that they were prophetic, well, prophecy is about promise and fulfillment, right? God is showing something, saying something, doing something that looks to something that is yet to come. And so there is both continuity and discontinuity. There has to be substantial correspondence between the promise side of things and the fulfillment side of things, or else it'd be impossible to know when the fulfillment comes. There has to be continuity. And in this case, the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood and its ministration, the way God structured it, the way he ordered it, the way it was administered, all of that was designed to portray and therefore to prefigure the messianic work. Messiah too, to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, but nonetheless to be a priest, Israel would think of priesthood in terms of what they knew of the Levitical priesthood, how it functioned, the components of it, what it was all about, its relationship to the covenant, and that same, those same ideas would ultimately carry through in terms of how to understand the fulfillment that was to come. Messiah would be a priest, but in what way? How exactly would that look? What would be the particulars? In what capacity? In what place? And the Jews would not have thought of the Messiah, son of David, as ministering in the sanctuary that they knew because, as he says, that was bound over to the Levites. So there is a discontinuity as well. The promise that's bound up in the priesthood and the priestly ministration of the Old Testament, it was a promise that depicted and therefore pointed towards what was to come, but it was not to be identical with it. Again, the writer keeps emphasizing Psalm 110. You are a priest according to a different order. A priest, but a different order. And a different priestly order implies a different sphere of ministration and perhaps even a different outcome of ministration, but certainly a different sphere of ministration. And that's where he gives his emphasis in the next few verses. Now, obviously, the issue of priestly ministration with respect to offering sacrifices, which is at the center of the priestly work, that is also something that has continuity and discontinuity in the work of the Messiah, and he's going to deal with that later. But at this point, where he turns his focus is to the different sphere of ministry, if you will, the place or the realm where this ministration takes place. 
In other words, a different priesthood, a discontinuousness in a different order of priesthood associated with a different sanctuary. And this would have made perfect sense to Israelite readers because the Levitical priesthood was established to function in connection with a sanctuary that was initially the tabernacle and then later the permanent temple. Priesthood requires place of ministration, a sanctuary. Why a sanctuary? Because what did the priests do? They mediated the relationship between God and his people. The covenant was founded on the priesthood. And so the priests went to the place where God dwelled. That's what the sanctuary was about. They went to the place where God resided in order to be representatives for the people. So the whole idea of a priestly ministration presumes a sanctuary, a place where the priest goes to encounter God to minister on behalf of the people. They were mediators. And that inseparable relation between priesthood and place of ministration suggests that the differences in the two priesthoods should find a corresponding difference in two sanctuaries. Now, none of this is very complicated, but this is all kind of presumed by the writer that his readers would understand that. And the way in which he fundamentally describes the difference in the two sanctuaries is that the one has a heavenly quality in contrast to the other having an earthly quality. There are three ways in which this heavenly sanctuary uh, associated with the messianic priestly ministration, three ways in which it's commonly been viewed, Uh, The first is that this heavenly sanctuary refers to Jesus himself. And there is a very real sense in which he is the place where God and man, creator and creature, come together. Uh, John's prologue, the, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of God was in the tent, the skene. Now we have, the, we have in the Messiah, in the incarnation, the glory of God now dwelling in this thing called the incarnate Messiah. He is the dwelling of God. The very cornerstone of God's sanctuary. That's one view. Another view is that it refers to the church, which is also a very New Testament idea, right? The church is the dwelling of God. Paul says that in Ephesians. Peter says that. You as living stones, you've been joined to the living stone. He's the cornerstone. You've become in him a spiritual house. The church is the sanctuary of God. And Paul, in fact, uses that term, the nous, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. He uses that only in one way of the church. And so people say, okay, well, that's what the writers here are talking about. The third option, which I believe is the correct one, is that this sanctuary associated with the Messiah is, the, again, as I said earlier, the realm in which God himself dwells. Now, God is everywhere. Obviously, it's not as if he's off in a place. This heavenly sanctuary is not a place, but it speaks to the space or the realm that God inhabits and from which he administers his rule. The realm that God inhabits and from which he 
exercises his rule over all things. And I think the context supports that. The reason why it would not be Jesus is because Jesus ministers in that sanctuary. And the writer isn't saying Jesus ministers in Jesus. But he's also not talking about the church here. He's contrasting this heavenly sanctuary with an earthly counterpart. His readers are thinking in terms of the tabernacle and then later the temple and the priestly ministration associated with that. The place where the glory of God was enthroned between the wings of the cherubim and the ministration that took place there. That's the counterpart to this heavenly sanctuary that he's referring to. So I think that that's what he's getting at. But again, the issue isn't location, but the very nature and the quality of this ministration of the Messiah as the enthroned king priest. And he expresses this, again, in relation to an earthly counterpart that he refers to as a shadow and a copy. A shadow and a copy. If we want to talk about continuity, discontinuity, how does the earthly sanctuary and, and the, the priestly work there compare with the heavenly sanctuary and the messianic priestly work there? He says that the correspondence should be seen in terms of shadow and copy. So what do we do with that? Well, the first thing that needs to be understood is that both a shadow and a copy derive from, reflect, and tangibly express an original substance behind them, right? Both a shadow and a copy derive from, reflect, and give tangible expression, sensory expression to an original substance. In that way, both are non-ultimate and both serve a testamentary function. They testify to something else. A shadow is not the issue. It testifies of something else. A copy testifies of something else. In terms of differences, a shadow conveys or connotes more the idea of, of an opaqueness or an obscurity. Less definition. We talk about shadowy things, shadowy arguments. A shadow is more opaque and more imprecise. It, it defers more to the substance behind it. You can't gain a whole lot of insight, relatively speaking, from the shadow. On the other hand, a copy is a replica. A copy is a more precise representation. And therefore, a copy provides a more precise, a more well-rounded insight into the original. But both of them are associated with an original that underlies them. So though, though they're distinct, they have a copy and a shadow, they're distinct, but they do have common characteristics. And in scriptural use, they, they are prophetic devices. A shadow is a prophetic device. A copy is a prophetic device. 
The first thing then that I want to mention about that is that the relation of the shadow and the copy to the original behind it, that correspondence is intentional, but it's also analogical. It's by way of an analog. In other words, they're not identical. But the correspondence is intentional. Biblical use of these ideas, God determines and orders that relationship. It's not arbitrary, it's not subjective. The shadow corresponds to the original in a way determined and ordered and and ultimately disclosed by God. In the same way, the copy corresponds to the original in a divinely determined and ordered way. Together, they function as promise in view of fulfillment. A shadow is a promise in a sense, right? Same thing with the idea of a copy. They point to something beyond themselves. But again, importantly, and this is the the most important thing, I think, is that shadows and copies both require, they both presume the prior existence of that which they correspond to. Why is that important? Because shadows and copies in the way in which the, the, the writer is speaking here are themselves prophetic. They are themselves a form of promise. They presume that the existence of that which they promise, which doesn't seem to make sense. That's like saying the fulfillment exists before the promise. The promise looks to a fulfillment that already exists. Here, the earthly sanctuary, which he says is a shadow and a copy, in the movement of history, in the flow of the salvation history, the earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle, and later the temple, they preceded this new sanctuary that has come in the Messiah. And yet in the scheme of the way a shadow and a copy work, that messianic sanctuary was preexistent to the one that was promised or preexistent to the the, uh, tabernacle that, that served as the promise. And if you don't think that that's the case, then you, you have to look at what he says in verse five. He says, these Aaronic priests served a tabernacle, their whole ministration, not just the tent itself, but everything inside it, the whole ministration, the whole structure of things. He says, all of that was devised according to a pattern that God gave to Moses on the mountain. Well, in order to give Moses a pattern, the thing that is being patterned has to already exist. But yet what Moses is building is the promise of the material realization of what that thing represents. Do you see the problem? Shadows reflect the substance behind them, as also do copies. And yet at the same time, those shadows and copies are promises of something to come. Paul 
uh, or the writer of Hebrews will even refer to the covenant that way, the old covenant. The law was a shadow of the good things to come. And Paul says all of these things that were a part of Israel's uh, covenantal life, eating, foods, all the festivals, Sabbaths, all of these things, he says they were a shadow of the good things to come, not the substance. So how can a shadow presuppose a thing while also predicting that same thing? If something already exists, how can there be a promise of its future existence? Now, maybe you haven't thought about this, but this is important to the argument that the writer is making to his Israelite audience. And here's the key. And and I, I emphasize this today because this is true with how all of scriptural prophecy and prefiguration works. The key is recognizing that the substance that lies behind the shadow, that lies behind the copy, exists as a matter of eternal design and determination, which God in his own time, according to his own eternal purposes, brings into material existence as the culmination of a process involving those preparatory shadows. What Moses was instructed to build on the earth was a copy or a representation of something that lay back of it. But lay back of it, what lay back of it didn't actually exist in the sense of having been realized in time and space. But it would. It's the same reason that Paul can write to Timothy and say this grace in Christ was given us from all eternity. Well, how could it be given to us from all eternity when Jesus was born in time and space at a certain point in time? Shadows are prophetic entities that reflect and express the substance that already exists as a matter of God's eternal now, but as promising and and guaranteeing the eventual material realization of that substance. In a very real way, we can say that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The whole notion of the linearity of time uh, is really just an illusion in our minds. Einstein himself said that the distinction between past, present, and future is a stubborn illusion. And he's right. And I don't want to go down that path. But the point is is that the writer isn't making some illogical thing saying, well, we had to have had a temple before the earthly temple was made, but yet he's promising that that temple's yet to come. How can it already exist and be yet to come? It's the way in which God works out the accomplishing of his eternal determination. So the earthly tabernacle, which pre, the, in, in the sense of historical flow, promise did precede fulfillment. But the determination of God lay back of that promise. So the earthly tabernacle gave tangible expression to the substance that was to be realized in connection with Jesus the Messiah. The end of times eschatological realization of the divine human encounter in and through the person of Jesus himself. 
So the tabernacle manifested the eternal reality of God's intent for a created order and the way it would exist in relation to himself. His intent was to bring together his existence and reign and the creaturely existence and realm, all brought together and realized in the person and work of the incarnate image son. What's the, why is that important? Well, among other things, that's the sense in which we have to acknowledge that all prophecy is Christ-centered, Christocentric and Christotelic. It has Christ at the center of it, and it finds its fulfillment in this Messiah. It's the way in which Paul said, all the promises of God are yes and amen in the Messiah. And this is a huge issue in biblical interpretation in our culture. People are like, well, all these prophecies haven't been fulfilled yet. Got to rebuild a temple. Got to do this. Got to have that. Got to have that. Paul says all the promises of God are yes and amen in the Messiah. Everything has been fulfilled in him. But being fulfilled in him, now there's the bearing of the fruitfulness that culminates with the summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth, in the Messiah. God's intent was to create a world that he would then take up into his own life and love through this connection point that is the human being. And that reality, that intent, that divine priestly regal work is is, is substantial, uh, substantialized, it's made substantive in the Messiah, and then ultimately in a new human race joined to him. That's the premise behind what the writer is saying here. All prophecy is messianic in that sense. That's true whether it's verbal prophecy, whether it's physical prophecy. And physical pro- prophecy is just this thing called typology. And I'm not trying to turn this into a hermeneutics lesson, but there are certain principles in which the writer is from which vantage points from which he's working and certain premises that he's assuming his readers understand. This idea of typology as as an instrument of prophecy is that an actual historically real entity, person, thing, event, circumstance is divinely intended by God to point to and to find its ultimacy in a future corresponding person, thing, entity, event, circumstance. You know, obvious one is the whole Passover episode, not just the lamb, but the whole Passover episode. Israel itself serves a typological function. This is the sense in which Jesus can say, all the scripture testifies of me. Because ultimately, if all prophecy has to do with Christ, all typological representations have to do with him as well, right? And a shadow and a copy in terms of scriptural usage are themselves typological entities. They're physical things that have an ultimate future significance and fulfillment. So the shadow substance characteristics of priesthood and sanctuary sphere administration 
suggest that there would be also a uniqueness in that ministration itself. The shadow substance idea would apply to what is actually done by the priest. Not just the status of the priest or the place where he ministers. And the writer says that. Just as the other priests, the Levitical priests, were required by God as part of their priestly ordination to offer gifts and sacrifices, so this priest, though he's a king priest, though he's a priest of a different order, though he's a priest associated with a different sanctuary or sphere of ministration, he too has the priestly responsibility and obligation of bringing an offering. And interestingly, he's, he uses only the singular here. He has to have something to offer, just like those priests had something to offer. And he doesn't say anything more about it here. It's going to become the subject farther down the road. But I think by implication, we can say at this point that what, he, what that something would be would be something suited to and conformed to his own superior priesthood. The nature of his priesthood, the, the, the realm of his administration, the way in which he is this different sort of priest will also be reflected in the kind or sort of offering that he himself would bring. And we know that it has to be something more than a merely earthbound offering because this has a heavenly quality to it. And the writer will go on to say, the former priest brought the blood of bulls and goats into the Holy of Holies. This one brings something else. He brings something else. So I want to just leave us with this, that whatever this one brings, and you can read ahead and see how he fleshes out this priestly ministration in terms of the sacrificial, the oblation idea, But whatever this one would bring, it must accord with the fact that he is the glorified image son. It must accord with the fact that he's the one who's enthroned in the heavenly realm as the true man. It must accord with a priestly ministration that is according to the power of an indestructible life. And that he offers or does that work in the context of his triumph, the context of an absolute triumph and place of dominion at the right hand of the majesty on high. Something more than simply a spotless material sacrifice. And I'm trying to just provoke your thinking a little bit in closing today because he's going to flesh all of this out. But I think as Christians, it's easy for us to see the correspondence and say, okay, these priests brought in the blood of spotless animals, bulls, goats, whatever. The blood of hand-picked spotless animals, animals that had no physical defect or whatever, that were specified by God in a certain way. Okay, well, Jesus offers up not an animal, but himself. And he offers himself up as this spotless sacrifice. He gives his blood as the sinless son of man. And, and, and there it is. There's the comparison. There's, there's the difference between the two priesthoods. And it's infinitely more than that.
maybe not less than that, but infinitely more than that. So I want to leave you just with this this statement. Um, This is by Thomas Torrance. He says, we are not saved by the atoning death of the Messiah, far less by sacramental liturgical action, but by Christ himself. Now, you might have to think about that, but he's getting at what I was just trying to express. We are not saved by the atoning death of the Messiah, but by the Messiah himself, who in his own person made atonement for us, in his person, in incarnation. It's what I've said before. The the very marrow of atonement is incarnation. When we understand what atonement is really about, it's not just a sacrificial death so that I can be forgiven. It's about the accomplishing of God's eternal design to gather everything up to himself. That's why incarnation is the very essence of atonement. It wasn't the death of the Messiah per se that brought atonement, but Christ himself in his person starting with having the substance in incarnation and then in his life, his life as true man, at every point contradicting the, own, the, the, the fallen Adamic humanness that he himself took upon himself, that he was born into, ultimately culminating with Calvary and the resurrection, the, ex, the resurrection and exaltation of man as man. That's what atonement is ultimately all about. He says, he, Jesus, is the atonement. He doesn't do atonement. He is the atonement. Who forever lives and ever intercedes for us. He is in the identity of his person and work. He does what he is. He is what he does. He himself is the reconciling of God and man and ultimately the reconciling of God and the creation. And what does he do? He reconciles God and man and God and the creation. He is what he does. He does what he is. There's the seriousness of God. It's not trifling around, I'll try this, I'll try that. It's God saying, I will solve this problem myself. And I won't just solve a problem. I will accomplish myself, in myself, through myself, by myself, all of my intent for the creation. He is the atonement who ever lives and intercedes for us. He is in the identity of his person and work, priest and sacrifice in one. His being as the exalted, enthroned, priestly man, the mediator between God and his world as the glorified man. Jesus is, in his being, the mediator of his great redeeming work. That's what the writer is trying to get his readers to understand. These are the ways in which this priesthood and this ministration that's come in a priest of a different order transcends the former order. It's not just a more sufficient sacrifice because a sinless man's better than a sinless animal. 
It's far more than that. And saints understanding that this is the case, again, is this where I began in my prayer? This should take us back to Paul's own doxology in Romans 8. The God who has done this, the God who is for us, the God who is for his world in this way, not in word, not in sentiment, not in a greeting card, not in well wishes, the God who has taken this up in himself and resolved and healed and restored, evidenced in the exaltation and the glorification of the Messiah himself, the true image son, the destiny of human beings, the destiny of the whole creation. The God who has done that, the God who has done that is the God that provokes us to say, if God is for us, who or what can be against us? Is the government going to take us down? Is a particular ruler going to take us down? Is disease going to take us down? Is nuclear war going to take us down? We are overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, in the creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not because God likes us or he just feels, you know, he's favorable towards us, but that in himself he has taken us to himself. In his son he has hazarded the the cursed world to himself. It's done. It's done. And we are partakers in that. We have to remind ourselves of these things because they escape us. And we are just like Israel. We look anxiously about us. Where's the remedy? Where's the hope? Who's going to fix this? Will they get a vaccine? Is Biden going to be elected? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Stop looking anxiously about you. I am he, the Holy One of Israel. I will arise. I will heal. I will restore. A redeemer will come to Zion. Arise and shine, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. What a glorious thing. We need to be Christians. We need to understand what God has accomplished in his son and what it means that Christ reigns as our great high priest. As I've said so many times, All that he is, all that he's become, all that the Father has given over to him is our destiny. We want to know what our inheritance is? He who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, mediating, you know, serving as a priest between God and his creation in the true tabernacle. That's our inheritance. Priests and kings to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Father, I pray that you would press these things upon our hearts and minds. It is so easy for us to get distracted. We all wrestle. We all struggle. We have to live the life of the heavenly places. As Paul said, we've been raised up in Christ. We, too, are seated in the heavenly places in him, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that's named in this age and the age to come. Christ has become head 
over all things with respect to the church that is his fullness. These are things, Father, that we can talk about, we can catch a glimpse of, but again, eye is not seen, ear is not heard. It's never really entered into our minds. We're incapable of really grasping what you have prepared for those who love you by your grace, by your power, by your good favor. The human destiny, the creational destiny, the glory of that is something that angels long to look into. The very spirits that sit in your presence and sing your praises, they long to look into the glory that you have purposed for your creation. And yet we are doubting, fearful, worried, fretting, discouraged, unhappy, bitter, resentful people. C.S. Lewis said, we are content to play in mud puddles when we have been given a holiday by the sea. All things are ours in the Messiah. He is yours, we are his, and our lives are hidden in you, in him. What can separate us from your love. Your love has triumphed. It's seriously taken into its grasp your intent and accomplished what you purposed. And therefore we sing your praises. Therefore we trust you. Therefore we walk out these days with all hope, with all confidence, with all trust. Father, give us such hearts. Give us such minds. By your grace and your power, cause us to truly live Christian lives. Perhaps these winnowing days will actually, by your design, accomplish that very work. Make your people have to sit up and actually think about what it is to be Christians. And maybe it will do some winnowing. But Father, may we bear that fragrance in every place. May we never grow weary in well-doing. May we never be discouraged. And may we spur one another on towards the love and the good works, the works of new creation that you purpose for us in the Messiah and that you have enabled us to do by gathering us up in him. This is the main point. We have such a high priest seated in the heavenlies ministering in the true tabernacle, which you pitched, not men. To our God be all glory in the church, in the world forever. Amen.